know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 157. And today we have Palabi Ghosh, and she runs the Impact and Dialogue Foundation in India. She's been at work in the anti-trafficking field for over 10 years. So welcome, Palabi. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm so happy that you can join us. And can you tell us um, what the Impact and Dialogue Foundation is and how you got started in the anti-trafficking field? So Impact and Dialogue Foundation was started with a lot of objectives. The primary one was, as I have been an anti-trafficking activist for the last 10 years, I realized that one of the main uh, reasons for so much of trafficking to occur is because of poverty. So not getting access to financial independence is one of the main reasons for so much of trafficking. So that's how we decided to create impact. Impact means going to the grassroots, interacting with people out there, trying to come up with innovative ideas and measures so that they can generate their own income. Thus making them stay in their own communities and not taking them far away uh, by luring them for a job or for marriage or for a better future. So that was the objective. That makes so much sense. So if you empower people and give them impactful employment, impactful opportunities and impactful vision, Mm -hmm. they don't place themselves at risk. They're no longer as vulnerable. And so what does Impact and Dialogue Foundation do? The primary thing is training and advocacy. So we train uh, different uh, people in the communities, like tea garden people. Uh, you can say uh, people, those who are like, uh, those who face domestic violence. And that's the reason they get lured to trafficking. So there are different categories of people, tribal people, people, those who come under the below poverty line category. Then we train a lot of stakeholders also like uh, law enforcement, uh, social welfare officers, child welfare officers. Uh, So, you know, we have different categories of training uh, for the school teachers, uh, educational institutions, like people, those who make a system, people, those who are part of the system. Mm -hmm. And so the, the stakeholders that you train, why is it important that you train those various professionals? Because first of all, none of them know what is trafficking. In India, everybody thinks that trafficking is more of a traffic signal. You know, the moment you say that it's trafficking, like for example, when I used to take my survivors to the doctor for getting their medical examination done from the brothels, the doctors used to tell me, oh, she has come from a traffic signal. Then it used to take me so long to explain to her about uh, the whole concept of trafficking, what are red light areas, uh, how this whole uh, forced marriage, child marriage, polyandry, why does it happen? Then the 
difference between male and female sex ratio due to which a lot of forced marriage happens then you see uh, poverty you know it, it's kind of you know everything is interdisciplinary and uh, one of the main reason to uh, train the law enforcement is because they are the first person who comes in contact with the survivor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah. people those who are social welfare officers so they their responsibility is to make sure that there is equality in the society they are there to uplift the society so if they don't have a knowledge for example people just get recruited by clearing exams but when you talk about specific knowledge about a particular subject or about a particular law they have no idea it is just a clearing an exam and you become an officer but then when you become an officer there are certain roles and responsibilities that you need to cater to they don't have the requisite skills and competence to like you know to implement or execute that so that's the reason we train them okay and do what's the perspective of these professionals when they're unaware do they stigmatize the victims do they think they choose this uh in their lives or what what's their initial perspective they stigmatize like for example they look at them with like they consider them like for example i remember my first training with police officers especially lower level officers constables they used to tell me are ma'am they do it by choice like mm-hmm. and then it used to take me time to explain to them no it's not by choice you know poverty so i used to give them examples like if you are given a choice between education and food you would obviously choose food because unless and until you survive Mm-hmm. you can't be educated so you know like they 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 have this orthodox mentality they think people do sex work by choice almost everyone do sex work by choice and they look at them with that kind of a uh, you know that derogatory look i still remember my uh, experiences of going to police stations where there were no separate rooms for uh, survivors of trafficking the police officers used to look at the girls from head to toe it it used to be so like it it used to be really so not just annoying but heartbreaking the constables pulling the girls out treating them like criminals you know so you know the sensitivity is not there when you, when they don't know they are not at all sensitive they are very rude they don't talk they don't have empathy uh, they don't have uh, this uh, feeling of uh, you know sense of uh, sisterhood that okay fine brotherhood that okay maybe, maybe this person is in a crisis no there is this always discrimination like they are uh, they are some you know low 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 level creature so so that that lot of things has changed people have become sensitive people have started talking about it out in the open like really really a welcoming change has come yeah well, that seems to be the perspective of uneducated people just around the world. The International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference is the largest and oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the world. Join us for our 19th annual conference hosted virtually this year on September 21st through the 23rd. You will have the opportunity to learn from and collaborate with thousands of advocates, researchers, providers and survivors from all over the world. You don't want to miss it. Find out more and register today on our website, traffickingconference.com. Where does the Impact and Dialogue Foundation do its its work in India? Where exactly are you? 
we were working all across the country doing rescue work but then uh, rescue work in terms of we were doing uh, prevention mostly uh, rescue like rescue from red light areas rescue from villages all kinds of organ trafficking uh, post marriage child marriage polyandry sex trafficking but then we realized that just rescuing won't help we have to focus on prevention mm-hmm. so that's how we started working in prevention and then we saw that what is the point of working in destination mm-hmm. why not let's work on source areas mm-hmm. because that's where the chunk of people come so that's why that's why we shifted we took one stage because it is just a, my organization is just one and a half years old and i am an activist for a long time but then my organization is very young and i'm the sole person running it you know how ngos work you need a team and everything so mm-hmm. i've taken one stage for now northeast india is very very famous for trafficking so i've taken assam awsam is the state in northeastern india where i'm focusing on okay and so you really go to the source and yeah, yeah. do prevention so have you met uh and worked with victims who are victims of uh particularly you mentioned organ trafficking yeah 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 last year i had rescued so many children who were termed as covid positive and their organs were taken out and the parents could not find it out because if they are covid positive and they are dead how the parents will touch the body right so this was an alarming thing for us and so what type of organs are popular that people want to take and other people want to buy uh kidney okay kidneys their eyes their kidneys or their eyes yeah yeah kidneys are primary primarily kidneys wow wow and so um when you talk about the the financial independence or the financial empowerment when you work with survivors um what kind of programming do you have available for uh that that's focused on the economic kind of solutions so we have started something very new uh, so what we do is that we go to villages and do a baseline study to figure out what is uh, possible in that particular village for example in one village you might be able to do pig farming but in the other village you can't because it's more of a you know uh, like religious issue okay so uh, you might and then there are climatic conditions somewhere you might be able to work in mushroom somewhere mushroom cannot be the source of cultivation also there are a lot of discrimination in terms of some people would like to do fish farming some people owned so what we do is that we try to do a baseline study to find it out what is feasible and available in the particular community and do it i have uh, like done a one month course of stitching knitting and weaving for girls for 11 girls of uh who were survivors of trafficking and we we gave them a stitching machine sewing machine and a certificate and one year of residence uh, residency so i don't keep the girls in a home because i don't have any home so there is a convent with whom i collaborated so i pay for their food and accommodation and the girls stay there and then during the graduation i pay for their sewing machine because for me it's very important that the girls stay in a very secure environment they can't just stay anywhere their safety and security is primary that is one thing second thing is that i want to break this whole stereotype of you know women doing only women work mm-hmm. so maybe maybe welding maybe stem something related with science technology engineering and mathematics like 
like something which is breaking the stereotype that women can do this so there are a lot of things that women can do so why not expose them to that so that's that's still in the initial phase we are still in the research phase so still not executed properly so that, that's one that's awesome so not only like sewing machines and owning their own sewing machines and going into business but you know welding technology math i i i love all that as well and so how do people get involved in the empowerment phase in that kind of financial independence how do they get selected so we what we do is that we try to find out uh, like for the we try to find out the poorest of the poor like because what happens is that and also the interest we try to interview people try to figure out their area of interest and also we try to reach people those who are more vulnerable mm-hmm. like we have a process of interviewing them talking with them doing a home investigation to understand because you know a lot of time what happen people join and they just leave you can't do that right mm-hmm. you actually have to continue because uh, there is a proper structure and all that the program is still in the initial phase of you know research and development so we try to find out we talk to the local authorities we do a lot of r&d before taking people okay so that you understand in your baseline study what the needs are and i i love that you're addressing poverty because poverty is the the core the core issue here so um where do you get your funding to be able to help these survivors to get involved in business or to purchase the sewing machines and those types of things to be very honest i have no funding what i do is that i am a consultant with multiple organizations so whatever consultancy fees i have uh, i get through that i am trying to like uh, do as much as i can uh, and then there are individual donors who help me because in order to get funding in india you need to have a lot of documentation and everything i am mm-hmm. in the initial process of getting some documentation done but still i don't have fcra and fcra it will take 3 years to get the fcra done Yeah, sounds like me. Um I don't the one thing I lack is patience. I don't want to sit around and wait for the proper funding, the proper paperwork. <laughs> Same issue. You yeah. know, I get so I am very fast with my work and I I get so annoyed seeing that delay, delay and delay like <laughs> Yeah, we we can't deal with the delays because they're real lives at stake here and I I agree you have to just start going. Well, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, is there a plan for you to um collaborate and get and get yourself uh, more stability in terms of funding? Is there a plan in the future? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to get FCRA, but you know, FCRA it will take at least 3 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get ATG and 12A for now. Let's go up and you know Indian uh, the whole Indian process of uh foreign uh, donations has become very very stringent and very very strict now okay. so one has to be very very careful with the entire process so definitely would uh, really be exploring that part well and palavi what what makes you tick why are you doing this with your own money and your own time like why would you spend your time doing this so when i used to rescue girls from trafficking you know they used to come out and i was very young when i started i started it when i was around 19 20 when i started rescuing girls mm-hmm. you know they used to come to me and they used to hug me and they used to tell me that uh, like you were like a mother who has given us a life 
you know i tried being a professor in a college i taught for 3 years but trust me you know i used to get nightmares thinking about those girls i used to think that if i don't do who will do and you know that's more of you can say a passion and i feel i i could i can earn a lot of money if i go out there teaching in a college or a school or anything but then you know that won't give me satisfaction i have tried doing it part time uh, part time i used to rescue survivors of trafficking and i used to teach full time in a college but three years i tell you i gained 25 kilos <laughs> i was stressed out uh, i my spouse was like no you should go back there's no point doing things like this where you are not getting any satisfaction so yeah. you know the, i don't know there is a there is a peaceful sleep i can get i i i i can't explain it in words i think there is something different about it i get a lot of peace so that's how that makes so much sense so much sense to me well let me go back because we i don't get to hear a lot about organ trafficking and child marriage not a lot so i just want to go back and visit that and just get a little more information in how organ trafficking works so can you tell us like how how is recruitment done like how does the whole process work you know what happens in india i'll tell you it is out of record nobody tries to reveal it what happens a lot of children go missing so mm-hmm. missing children are always counted in the category of missing children and that's the reason the case becomes very uh, like not serious people don't tend to take it seriously so most of the organ trafficking happens with children who go missing who don't have families who don't go for firs so someone who doesn't have any background someone who is who can be easily you know untraceable mm-hmm. someone who will not be found out mm-hmm. so you know they are not recruited you know they will be duped with a chocolate which will be drugged do the children uh, do they survive this experience if their kidney is taken or what happens are they taken to a hospital and that kidney removed or how does I that have, work i have seen multiple cases of children after their kidney kidneys are removed they are put put into begging begging mafia you know begging child begging yeah yeah because they don't tend to leave the children outside because people can find out right hmm so they keep the children along with them so the children can beg like for example if a child doesn't have eyes the child can get this much of amount if the child doesn't have hand the child can get this much of amount if the child doesn't have legs you know there are quotas uh, like so they keep the they keep the kids and they yeah, make yeah, yeah, money. but if you but if you ask anyone in india nobody will reveal it because there is no date showing that yeah yeah wow wow and so they just keep it, 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 yeah it's it's a nexus you know it's so it's it's so alarming what i see is that you know uh, children are put into big vans and dropped in every red light area and they are taught like there is a proper training center where they are taught how to cry how to beg like it's a, it's like a training school you know and i'm surprised at the way this is being done for years and nobody intervenes wow and do they do they take the hands or the leg a leg just so that they can evoke a little more sympathy and so people will give more money or what's the point of taking the hands or a leg or more an arm more money more money because if you have all the organs in the body people will not give you money 
But if you have less organs in the body, people will give you money. Okay. Okay. That makes sense, I guess. And so what about child marriage? How does that work in India? Child marriage huge. In order to get rid of teenage pregnancy, in order to get rid of not using condoms, they just get their children married. Because they think that if the children are get married, because in India or any other, any other country, people have this ideology that marriage is a legal license for sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, India rampant, Rajasthan, Bihar, uh, Uttar Pradesh, huge number of child marriages, not just for girls, but for boys also. Huge, huge. During the pandemic, what happened? If one girl was getting married, they were making sure that five, six get married because they were not able to feed the girls. So along with dropouts also, there were a huge number of trafficking happening. Okay. So and what age do can uh, does this happen? Is it legal in India? No. In India, it is, it is 18 years for girls and 21 years for boys. I think they have increased the age of girls from 18. But 12, 13, 14 girls get married. And how are they able to do this if it's illegal? Do they have um, people that they pay off to, to legally? Yeah, marry? nobody reports. No, nobody reports. Okay. No reporting is done. And even if reporting is done, uh, they will try to thrash the person, the law enforcement who is involved. Okay. Wow. And so you mentioned just briefly COVID really impacted a lot of this. Can you talk about how COVID impacted organ trafficking or child trafficking or child marriage? Uh, Because in COVID, what happened? People lost their jobs. There was no source of income. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, and it was easy for people to dupe the other person saying that the person is COVID positive and the organs to taken out because nobody will touch the body. And in COVID, girls dropped out from schools. So, you know, it was very easy to, you know, tell the parents that the girl dropped out of school and uh, no idea when the school will happen, get your girl married. Yeah, yeah. So, luring the parents, paying the parents, also in trafficking, oh, your girl is not studying, uh, send her with us. She's in the village, she will go to Delhi, earn a lot of money. So, see, this kind of things happened a lot. Wow. Well, you have a lot of work to do and you're making a difference. I mean, I think it's wonderful. And so what is the next phase for Pallavi? What do you see happening in your life or with the foundation in the next maybe three to five years? I actually want to make sure that I impact a lot of lives in the sense because I want to, because I have rescued more than 10,000 children in the last 10 years, if I can count it properly. But uh, I want to make sure that even if I have now prevented 10,000 cases of trafficking, then those 10,000 should be placed properly. You probably impacted about 10,000 lives over the course of your work. That's amazing. If somebody is interested in contacting you and maybe perhaps they, they have funding or they have ideas or they'd like to collaborate how can they get a hold of you and, and what's the website for the foundation? I, I will just share the website link with you and my email ID also. People, I, w- I would love it if people just reach out to me. It, 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 not in terms of funding, but in terms of any volunteering, any conversations, anything. It would be really a privilege 
Well, uh, thank you so much, Palabi, for all the work that you're doing and you've already done and much success to you in the future. And um, we'll talk soon. Yeah, surely. That was Palabi Ghosh from Impact Dialogue Foundation. And while she didn't say it, she is funding this project on her own. So financial support is critically important. So I will say it on behalf of her. If there's anybody out there that wants to make a difference, but you don't have the time and the energy and maybe even the knowledge to get involved as boots on the ground, she's already got the whole setup. She understands poverty and opportunity, blocks people and creates the vulnerability and increases the risk. And so she's working on uh, helping the people not only emotionally and mentally and in trying to serve their basic needs, but she's also engaged in economic empowerment so that people are equipped and empowered so that they won't become vulnerable to these forms of trafficking. So if you're out there and you want to support a project that's genuine and authentic and already already going, reach out to Pallavi and collaborate. If you don't have the financial means, there are other resources I'm sure that she could use that you could ship to her that she could give out to people that she interacts with. I was particularly interested in her discussion about child marriage and COVID, but particularly about organ trafficking, because we don't get to hear a lot about organ trafficking and how it happens and who it happens to. And when she talked about children and kidneys and eyes, I know through my research that kidneys are the number one uh, organ that is harvested and sold, particularly uh, from third world countries to first world countries. And you think, well, who in first world countries would ever purchase a kidney on the black market or any organ? Well, I'll tell you who. Families that are very desperate because their loved one is on a waiting list and has been on a waiting list for several months or and they're becoming weaker and there's a pending potential that they may not make it. These families begin to think about the potential to receive a kidney um, from somewhere somewhere else, another country. Um, maybe they're not even aware of how all this happens. They know it's illegal, but they're desperate. And so it's a supply and demand. Without a demand, there wouldn't be people out there taking people's kidneys. And that's the reality of human trafficking and particularly organ trafficking. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.